You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, well, we are... uh... This is week three in our series called The Miracles of Jesus, and uh, we're, we're going back and we're just looking at the miracles of Jesus, of course, found in the four Gospels. And uh, let me just remind you about our foundation scripture. You don't have to turn. If, while I'm talking, you want to turn, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Okay, I'm going to mute. Somebody's got me loud. There we go. All right, so John chapter 21, verse 25. John the apostle wrote this. He said, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so again, the apostle John made that statement. And of course he was witness to all of it. He saw the entire ministry of Jesus and everything that was involved in that. And, uh, You know, so if there was anybody that had authority to be able to say that, John certainly did. But what's amazing to me is um, the fact that, you know, and of course, what he said was true. Uh, It is true. And the fact that in that short period of time, relatively speaking, that Jesus ministry was active, he did that much. He went around and ministered and touched people's lives that much. And so that's absolutely awesome. And then I just remind you about what Hebrews 13, 8 says. It says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if Jesus worked miracles then, Jesus still works miracles today. I like to say it like this, and this would be a good synopsis of this whole series, and that is this, what Jesus did, he still does. What Jesus did, he still does does. And so uh, I need to give credit where credit is due and, and, and probably the largest portion of the material that we're talking about in this particular study comes from a series that Pastor Rick Renner did called The Miracles of Jesus Christ. And um, all of this is available. It's free on YouTube. You can go out and watch his lessons on YouTube if you'd like. But just great. You know, I love his ministry because of the depth of the Greek language that he goes into. And so we're we're endeavoring to take a look at some of the same things that he covered. And so in uh, Mark chapter one, if you found it there. So in Mark chapter one, Jesus begins calling his disciples and gathering them up. And so in verse 21, it says, and they went into Capernaum. And so if you'll remember, we we talked last week about how Jesus wanted and and desired to start his ministry in Nazareth, his hometown where he grew up, but because of the unbelief of the people, the familiarity, they shut down the power of God from being able to move in their lives. Isn't that something? Even though Jesus, his desire and his will was to be able to work mightily in and among those people and the people were able to shut down what God wanted to do in their hometown. You know, that kind of 
flies in the face of this belief that God can do whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to. If that was the case, then Jesus could have just carried on and continued working miracles. But as we know, the, the word teaches us that he could not. So a matter of fact, to the point where they wanted to take him and throw him off a cliff. And so he and the disciples left Nazareth and came south in Israel to a town called Capernaum. Now, if you'll remember, I said Nazareth was a very, very small village. Very few people lived there. Maybe, you know, a few hundred people lived there. It was largely agricultural. And so Jesus took his ministry, moved it down to Capernaum, and Capernaum was the diametric opposite of Nazareth. You had this bustling uh, city, if you will, that uh, was right on the Sea of Galilee. And as I shared with you last week, the, the Via Maris, which was a, a Roman road stretched from northern Israel, actually it went all the way from Syria down to Egypt and passed right by Capernaum. So you had these people, it would be like the I-95 of today, going all the way from New York State and up north, all the way down to Florida. And so you had all this traffic on uh, the Via Maris that was passing by, and uh, it was just a great opportunity for Jesus to be able to reach and touch the, the and have the greatest exposure that he possibly could in ministering to people. And so again, verse 21, then they went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Now, uh, you know me, I like to show some pictures. And so let me show you some pictures here. This is uh, archaeological dig that they have had going on at Capernaum. Now, this isn't the entire village. Of course, I want to show you how large the Sea of Galilee is. You can see it just... Uh, you know, a little portion of it from this particular vantage point. I think a lot of times when we talk about the Sea of Galilee, you and I, our reference is, you know, some of the lakes and things that we have around here. The Sea of Galilee is absolutely huge. Um, there were a lot of people that lived on the Sea of Galilee simply because of uh, the fishing income and so forth and so on. What you see here in these walls is actually a, an archaeological dig of a portion of the city of Capernaum that was done by two Franciscan uh, monks that came there in the latter part of the 18th or 1800s and early 1900s and began to dig in the city. Very little had been dug in and around Capernaum up to this point. One thing to note is that uh, a lot of the buildings were left standing. They weren't destroyed by the Romans, but during the Crusades and those times uh, in the early, you know, fourth, fifth, all the way up th through the, you know, 10th century is when a lot of this, this destruction that took place. But just to show you what we're looking at here, this is, of course, a modern day picture. This building here in the center is actually the synagogue. Uh, that was the center focal point of the entire village. And this particular synagogue, the ruins of this synagogue that you see here are limestone. And this synagogue was actually constructed in the fourth century. So this would not have been the synagogue that Jesus walked in. However, it was built on the ruins of the synagogue that Jesus actually walked in. Now, what's interesting is this building right here, this odd-shaped building, 
This is actually a Roman Catholic church that was built in 1990 on top of the ruins of where Peter's house was. So the reason, one of the reasons that I showed you this is so you could see how close Peter's house was to the synagogue. And we're going to see that relationship in just a moment. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Peter and Andrew, who, of course, you know, they were brothers who had their own fishing business. And the scripture says that Peter and Andrew were, were from Bethsaida, which was a town about five miles from Capernaum. Now, what's interesting is that uh, both of them, of course, had their fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. And even though they were those two towns were that close together, they were in different regions governed by two different governors. One governor charged exorbitant taxes on everything that was bought and sold. Sound familiar? And uh, then in Capernaum, uh, the taxes were a whole lot lower. In other words, if, if these guys went out and caught a large amount of fish, when they would bring the fish to the shore to be processed, which meant they would uh, put them in salt, they would dry them out so that they would last. Of course, they didn't have refrigeration and so forth. And so uh, when they would bring this large haul of fish in, they would get taxed on it before they even had a chance to sell it. And so Tired of those high taxes, uh, Andrew was the first to relocate to Capernaum down in this lower tax district. It would be, just imagine, you know, just to uh, kind of give you a point of reference. Many of us know that um, in North Carolina, gasoline taxes are higher than they are in South Carolina. So a lot of people, and, and they're getting closer to being the same, but for years, a lot of people would drive from Charlotte down to Rock Hill to, to buy their gas because, you know, I can remember at points when it was 50 and 60 cents cheaper per gallon in Rock Hill than it was in Charlotte. So kind of the same reference. And so Andrew was the first one to relocate his home to Capernaum. And then Peter soon followed. And so what you have is, is now the two brothers, they have their fishing business in uh, Capernaum. And so let me bring this picture back up so I can show you another picture. I don't know if you like these pictures, but it helps me to put a point of reference to some of these things. Okay. This is that church, that Catholic church that's built on top of the ruins to Peter's home. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Peter's home. Uh, Peter, of course, uh, lived there until he was martyred and, uh, you know, for preaching the gospel. And, and when persecution really arose against the church, a lot of the disciples fled this area and went to other areas. This, uh, his home was actually used as a church in the very early part of what we know as the church age. As soon as the day of Pentecost came, uh, his home was used as a church of course, they didn't have big modern buildings like we do today. And so he had a home church in his home. And what's interesting is that uh, during the second, third, and fourth centuries after Jesus you know, ascended to heaven, there were a, was a mass flood of people that came to the Holy Land. And everywhere that there was considered a holy site, 
they would construct a church on top of it. And so what would happen is, let me get to um, another picture. Sorry, bear with me. Here we go. Okay, that's looking down. That Catholic church has a glass floor in it, so you can look down into the ruins of Peter's house. Now, what's interesting, though, is you'll see there a round wall on top of the, the rocks there in the bottom. I've got another picture. There it is. And what that is, that is actually a church that was built during the Byzantine Empire in the first and second century on top of Peter's house. What you'll see, and this happened all throughout the Holy Land, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Holy Land at all, uh, you know, for instance, in Bethlehem, where they believe that Jesus was born, they constructed a church on top of that site. Uh, in Jerusalem, where it is believed that Jesus was buried, they built a church on top of that site called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so what that has done for modern day archaeologists has really clouded everything. So, you know, there's the the garden tomb that everybody is familiar with where Jesus is concerned. But those who are part of that Orthodox church believe that that church that was constructed on top of the tomb is where Jesus actually was buried. So my point is this, this round thing that you see there is not part of Peter's house. <laughs> it was a church that was constructed on top of Peter's house. But what that did is it blocked archaeologists from being able to, or, or it made it more difficult. Now, when they dug below this church, they did find the ruins of a home, and they knew that it was a home because there was pottery there, there was evidence of uh, cookware, and there were hooks that were used for fishing in the, the lower layers of the excavation of this particular site. So, anyway, what that did is it just you know, uh, it enabled them to really narrow it down. And we know from the scriptures that Peter's house was very close to the synagogue. So that helped the, the people narrow it down. Some there's Rick's uh, site. Let me show you. All right. This is the synagogue. See the difference between the white stone and the dark stone. The dark stone is actually the layer where Jesus walked. The, the light stone, the white stone, is actually the limestone uh, synagogue that was constructed on top of this, okay? So just keep these things in mind. If, if you look at pictures and Google pictures of the Holy Land, or if you ever get to, to go, which, uh, you know, one of these days I would love to be able to go, just keep all these things in mind so when you're looking at things, you know how to take it into its proper context, okay? So... Uh, this is what the inside of that synagogue would have looked like. You can definitely see the Roman and the Greek influence on the synagogue. The original synagogue would not have had that influence. It would have been more uh, influenced by the Hebrew culture alone. Okay. And uh, so that's it. Let me stop that. Okay. Now, so that all being said, verse 21, again, and when they went into Capernaum, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. So the first thing, and we talked a little bit about this last week, the word immediately in the Greek language, it basically means this, Jesus wasted no time getting into the synagogue. And what that tells us is God does not waste time. 
You know, Jesus didn't hem haw around and dilly dally around and just waste a lot of time before he dove in and started getting to work to minister and to teach and so forth and so on. And so he did this when he rolled into to Capernaum and it says, and he entered the synagogue and taught verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And we said last week that one of the reasons the scribes were, were good people. I mean, don't misunderstand me. They weren't inherently evil, but they were very intellectual in the sense of that all they did was read and studied and wrote the scrolls over and over and over again. So a lot of the the knowledge that they had about God was all intellectual. They had no reference to the power of God at all. So Jesus shows up in their town. Here's all these religious leaders standing there. And then, of course, the common people that came to the synagogue to be taught and all of a sudden, this man shows up and begins to, te- begins to teach the word of God with authority and with power. There was an anointing on what Jesus was teaching that was different than what the scribes, when they taught. When they taught, it was all intellectual. When Jesus taught, it was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting to me is that it was immediately noticed when the anointing was present, when the power of God was present on Jesus' teaching, the people immediately recognized it. And it says they were astonished for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, in this environment where the power of God is present, remember we said last week that there was this man that was there. The scripture says that he was there in their midst and he had an unclean spirit and he cried out. And of course, this the spirit crying out, not the man. The man begins to scream uncontrollably, the Greek says, and that he began to just shriek and make all these uh, screaming noises. And uh, of course, that got Jesus' attention, got everybody's attention that was in the building. And notice in verse 24, it said, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, notice, you know, again, as I always teach you, pay attention to the details. The demons cried out and they said something very interesting. They said, are you come to destroy us? I know who you are. So what you need to understand is the devil, Satan, and his team knew that there was someone who was coming who was going to wreak havoc on their kingdom. They knew there was someone, based on the prophecies that God had been delivering all throughout the Old Testament, that there was one coming that was going to bring destruction to their kingdom, bring defeat to their kingdom. But here's what they did not understand. Uh, If you want to make just a note of a couple of verses here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul said this. He said, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory and this is the key right here, verse eight, which none of the rulers of this age knew for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
And he's not talking about human rulers there. He's talking about rulers that rule in the realm of darkness. They knew there was one that was coming. They knew that this one was going to bring redemption, that he was going to do this huge work. But what they did not know was how God was going to go about it. And that was the mystery, the mystery of redemption that, you know, because listen, the scripture says that God declared to the devil in the garden of Eden, there's one coming from the seed of the woman that's going to, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. And so they had known for, for all of that period of time that someone was coming. Okay. They did not know how it was going to take place. And so what you see is a lot of times in these manifestations of demonic activity in Jesus' ministry, they were probing, trying to see, is this the one? And so Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Now notice this, this was the mission of Jesus, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, the word destroy there does not mean eradicate, get rid of. What it means is bring to nothing. In other words, they knew that, and they had inklings that there was one that was coming that was going to bring the works of darkness to nothing, bring them to zero. First John chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So they knew two things. Number one, they knew that there was someone who was coming who was going to bring their whole kingdom to zero. And they knew that there was someone who was coming who was going to undo the works of that kingdom and bring them to zero, bring them to naught. Okay, so... When this demon speaks out and says in verse 24, what have we to do? Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice they didn't refer to him the same as they did at the end of this. It says, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay. Notice they went from referring to him as Jesus of Nazareth to the Holy One of God. Now, if you'll remember, we said last week that they knew Jesus because they had already had an encounter with him when Satan and the third of the angels were cast out of heaven uh, at the fall of Lucifer. And uh, so they saw what, what heaven, what God, and what the Lord Jesus were able to accomplish. And I'll just remind you again of what Jesus said. He, when the disciples came back in Luke chapter 10, and uh, 11, when they were sent out to heal and to deliver and set people free, they came back and they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, behold, I saw them fall like lightning from the sky. And so Jesus was present when all of that took place. So they were aware. They knew who he was. And so in verse 25, though, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Now, Jesus <laughs> rebuked means that he, he basically cut off the conversation. 
Now, one thing you need to understand is the devil will try and out talk you. Okay. Don't put up with his conversations. You do not have to have conversations with the devil. Don't give him the time of day. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He said, be quiet. That's a nice way of saying, shut up and come out of him. And so it says in verse 26, and when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Verse 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now here's something that's key. Verse 28. Verse 28 says this, and immediately, immediately, not six months, immediately, his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee, which was a huge area. Now, how do you think that happened? Well, it happened because, number one, the word spread. All those tourists that were in town uh, because of the Via Maris, they heard about what Jesus was doing. And all of a sudden, the word, uh, uh, the, the fame, if you will, the news of what was going on in Capernaum began to spread around the entire region. Now, verse 29, notice, and again, pay attention to the details. And it says this, now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So Jesus left the synagogue and you saw how close the two were. I mean, just 150, 200 feet apart, you know, if that maybe a football field. And so they walked straight from the synagogue out of, after casting the demon out of this man and walked straight from there to Peter's house. Now, um, what we do know is that Jesus stayed at Peter and Andrew's house for a period of time as, as he began his ministry. Okay. And so he entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So all of the four of them were there. Now we do know that Peter was married. We're getting ready to find that out. Uh, we don't know if Andrew was married. The supposition is, is that he was in James and John as well. But notice this, it says in verse 30, but Simon's wife's mother. So we know that Simon had Peter, uh, had a mother-in-law. So we do know he was married from that statement. But Simon, Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. Now, you know, in our modern day, uh, knowledge that we have of medicine and the insight that we have today uh, is, is much greater and much different than what they had back in Jesus' day. What the Greek actually says is that she was fevering, F-E-V-E-R-I-N-G. And so this, she had a fever, and obviously today we know that when one has a fever, it's because your body is fighting some type of infection. In the day that Jesus is, is ministering and is living here in the earth, um, a fever could be a death sentence to someone. Uh, we, they, they didn't have 
Advil, Tylenol, and all of that that they could go and, and take advantage of and seek treatment as far as, uh, you know, someone who had a fever. And so this the in the Greek language, when it says that his mother-in-law lay sick, in the Greek language, it is very, it's a very serious condition. You know, the women did everything around the house. And so for her to be laid up and not able to do anything is an indication that she was very, very sick and could not get out of bed. The Greek language for the word fever there, it, it actually means a fiery, scorching heat. And uh, it meant that she was prolonged. This was a prolonged condition. This had been bothering her for a while. And so this, this again, was a very, very serious condition. So it says that he came in verse 31 and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Now, I love, I love being able to, of course, draw upon ministers like Rick Renner and then, of course, being able to study some things out for myself as far as the original language is concerned. But, but when it says that he took her by the hand, this is quite remarkable. The word took in the Greek word, uh, in the Greek language, it means he grabbed her hand firmly. This was not where he just took her by the hand and was petting her and saying, bless your heart. I'm sorry that you're feeling so bad. I'm sorry that you have this fever. I'm sorry that you're dealing with this condition. Though the, what the scripture actually says is that she, he seized her hand. He took a firm grip to it and apprehended it. And at the same time that he's doing this, he picks her up. Now, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of, of seeing a lot of healing ministries throughout the years. I, I can remember, and you can go and watch videos. Thank God for technology on YouTube of Oral Roberts in his healing ministry, or, you know, some of the old uh, ministers, A.A. A. Allen and William Branham, and some of those healing evangelists in the, the 40s and the 50s that were out ministering. And we hear stories about uh, even during Smith Wigglesworth's ministry in England and, and then in the United States, that there were sometimes some unorthodox means whereby people would minister healing. You, you, there, you know, you could see Oral Roberts lay hand on, uh, lay hands on someone and, and, and shake them, uh, because he was being led by the Holy spirit to do that. Well, this is exactly what happened with Jesus. He walked into the room, took her by the hand and aggressively at the same time that he was taking her by the hand, he was releasing his faith for the healing power of God to flow into her body. And at the same time that he's doing that, the Bible says that he lifted her up. And so he grabs her by the hand, reaches out to her, not only physically, but spiritually as well with his faith. And at the same time that he's doing that, he picks her up. And the Bible says, again, pay attention to the details. And immediately the fever left her. So here you have this woman in this situation where she's burning up with the fever. I'm quite sure she felt absolutely horrible, didn't feel like doing anything. And, you know, for all practical purposes, could have been at the, clo at the close to the door of death. But Jesus walks in, and I love the fact 
that he refused to take no for an answer. He reached out to this woman. Now he, you know, he's new to the area. He knows Peter and Andrew, but he's new to the area, did not know uh, Peter's mother-in-law that we know of. And so he just reaches out, ministers healing to her, and immediately she was healed and she served them. Now, what's interesting is that this Greek word for serve is the word diakonos, that we get uh, the word deacon from for church service. And so what this means is, is that immediately when she was healed, she rose up and because of appreciation and honor for what God had done in her life and in her physical body, she served them, served the Lord because she wanted to uh, show and extend her appreciation to the Lord again for what he had done in her life. So here we see Jesus rolls into town and the very first little while that he's there, he goes in and he teaches in the synagogue, cast a demon out of a man that was in church and then goes across the street to Peter's house and, and just straight heals his mother-in-law, raises her up. And uh, so then let's go on, look at verse 32. And so at evening, so this is still all within the same day, at evening, when the sun had set, notice what happened, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Now go back, you remember I said to you in uh, verse 28, it says, after he had cast the demon out of this man, it said his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So his fame began to spread. People began to gather up sick people, lame people, people that were being tormented by the devil, people that needed to be set free, all of those physical conditions. And so all of that was going on and they brought all of these people. Can you imagine, you know, Peter, you're looking out the front door of Peter's house and there's all these people there because they, they have heard about this man, Jesus, who is present, okay? So it says um, the, the word brought there, actually in the Greek language means that they carried people. So there were people who were brought there who could not have gotten there any other way except that someone physically carried them to where Jesus was. And so it paints the picture for us that there was a steady stream of critically ill people that were being carried to Jesus at this time. The word diseased there in the Greek language is really interesting. It, um, it paints the picture. It's, it's two Greek words that means to have something evil, vile, foul, or bad that was tormenting these people. It, and in other words, these things, these, these sicknesses, these, these infirmities and so forth were taking ease away from the people. Hence the word diseased. Okay. So these people were diseased that the devil was working in their lives to cause them to steal from them because of sickness and disease. So it indicates that anyone in bad shape or bad condition, having anything that was wrong with them, 
they were carried and brought to Jesus. So what happened? That evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now, can you imagine this sight? Can you imagine you being in your home? And of course, you have this guest. His name is Jesus, and he's already done two miracles while he's there in your midst. And you walk out your front door, and the whole city has gathered at your front door so that they can see and receive from this man, Jesus. And so in verse 34, it says, then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they now knew him or they knew him. So they began to get an inkling of, to, uh, of, of who this was. Now, the word healed there, underline that in, in your Bible if you can. The word healed there is actually the Greek word therapuo, that we get our word therapy from. Okay. Now think about this. When you go for physical therapy, maybe following surgery or following some type of injury, what this is, is it's designed to do something to facilitate healing in your body. Okay. By the way, let me say this, and, and anybody who is in the medical profession will agree with this. Medicine and doctors and surgeons and, and all of that field, as, as grateful as we are for them, they don't heal anybody. Absolutely not. Medicine does not provide healing. What medicine does, and when I say medicine, I'm not just talking about prescriptions. I'm talking about surgeries and all that kind of thing. What they do is to facilitate what the body is already trying to do. Now, what's interesting about that is, let me say this to you. Does anybody know off the top of your head how long Adam lived after he fell? Do you remember a little trivia question? Okay. 900 and some years, right? 930 years. Now that's after he fell. We don't know how long he lived before he fell. Now, what that tells me is here you have this body that was designed by the heavenly father, created by him, that was flowing with the life of God. I mean, it had the the glory of God, the spirit of God, the anointing of God, the power of God flowing through it readily all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So much so that you had this human being, a man who was able to walk and talk with God in the cool of the day, every day he fellowship, fellowship with God. Now, so as we all know from the, from the book of Genesis, Adam fell. He sinned. And at that point, his spirit died. At the very moment that he sinned, his spirit died. Mm -hmm. But it took 930 years for his body to catch up with the death that was in his spirit. All right. Now, 
Here we are 6,000 years after Adam's fall, and our human bodies still fight to live, still fight for life. And so I say all that to say medical science, as wonderful as it is, and I'm grateful for it, all it does is facilitate what the human body was designed to do way back in the beginning, and that was to live, okay? And so what I'm saying to you is that all of these diseased people were brought to Jesus, and the power of God went into their physical bodies to eradicate what the curse had been trying to do all along, and that was to kill them, okay? So uh, when I said the word therapy, it's actually in the, the pure definition of that word therapeuo means this, a healing touch that requires corresponding actions. A healing touch that requires corresponding actions. So when it says that Jesus healed these people and ministered to them, and the fact that this word therapuo is used, listen, let me ask you a question. If you have surgery and they prescribe to you a certain amount of physical therapy, the therapy is designed to work with your body. But if you refuse to do the therapy, guess what? You hinder the healing of your body. Well, let's take that over from the natural into the spiritual. When, because of this word therapuo was used, what it means is that there was something that the people had to do to correspond with the healing power of God that was at work in their body. For instance, you remember the man that had the withered hand in the synagogue mm -hmm. that day? And what did Jesus tell him to do? I mean, he's standing over there in the corner and his hands all withered up. Jesus brought him out, stood him in front of the whole crowd and told him to do something. What did he tell him to do? Do you remember? Stretch forth your hand. Forth your hand. <laughs> what if the man had stopped and said, I can't do that, Jesus. You know, my hand has been like this since I was born. I was born this way, Jesus. And so what would have happened? That lack of corresponding action would have shut down the power of God and kept the man from being healed. So when you see this happening, what you see is Jesus making a demand on the people to put some type of corresponding action with the healing power of God that showed up. Now, how many times in there between Jesus walking into Simon's house and then in verse 34, him healing all of those people that were brought to, you know, the, the outside of Peter's house. How many of those people did he pray for? Zero. Can I tell you something? Guess how many people Jesus prayed for in all of his ministry? Zero. Zero. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now there's nothing wrong with us as believers praying for people. We're instructed to do that. The Bible says in Mark chapter 16, that we lay hands on the sick and they shall recover in James chapter five. It says, let, you know, let the sick person call for the elders of the church 
and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. But could it be that Mark 16 just, Mark 16 doesn't mention praying for the sick. It just says lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Could it be that there's an impartation that God desires to use us in that he used Jesus in and the transferring of the power of God simply by touching people as directed. Now, I don't advise you going around just haphazardly touching people. I'm talking about being directed by the Holy Spirit because if you try and touch people without them giving you an invitation, you're probably going to get touched back and you're not going to like it. Okay. So what I'm saying to you is we need to pay close attention to how Jesus ministered to people. Now, let me say this and let me qualify it. Okay. The scripture says that Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. You and I have the Spirit with measure. So Jesus ministered under a full measure of the Holy Spirit, meaning the power of God uh, was turned all the way up in his ministry. For you and me, it's not, not as much as it was with him. Now, why is that? Because we are the body of Christ. Back then, there was only one Jesus. Now, there's millions of Jesuses walking around the earth because of the new birth and being children of God, okay? All right, so again, that, that Jesus would minister to people. He would touch them. He would speak to them. Uh, many times, you know, Jesus, we, uh, what comes to mind is, is when Jesus made the clay from his own spit, put it in the man's eye, and even Jesus touching the man's eye was not enough to get the man healed, the man still had to take a step of faith. Jesus told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and he came back seeing. See, what we need to understand, y'all, is that God has a part to play, and we have a part to play. Our part is the faith part. God's part is the power part, okay? So what Jesus, and you'll see this all throughout the ministry of Jesus, is that Jesus always endeavored to bring people to a place of faith. So where what you'll see happen is when Jesus would go into an environment, the Bible says he would preach and he would teach and then he would heal. He would preach, he would teach, and then he would heal. Why do you think he did it in that order? Anybody? To build faith. How does faith come? By hearing the word. Where is it? Where, where is that found? Do you know? Uh, it's, yeah. So Romans 10, Romans 17. 10 17. Yeah. <laughs> faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if Jesus needed the people to have faith, which he did, then he's going to have to teach them first. Okay. Now. Not one time, <laughs> it just, you know, and this is a marvel to me. Not one time in Jesus' ministry did he ever roll up on somebody that needed healing and they came to him and said, you know, express a desire to be healed. And Jesus said, no, listen, I, you've got something going on in your life and, and uh, I need you to clean that up first. And then once you get yourself together, then we can talk about your healing. 
Or you never heard Jesus say something like this. You know, uh, that disease you've got, I'm really teaching you something through all of that. So I'm going to need you to carry that for a little while longer because uh, you haven't learned what I'm wanting you to learn. And so you just going to have to have that infirmity for a while longer. And then we'll talk about your healing. Not one time, but yet we build doctrine like that in the church because of our failure to receive from the Lord Jesus receive healing from him. Okay. And it's absolutely false. There is nowhere in the scripture that teaches that, that sickness and disease is designed and used by God to heal people. I mean, to teach people. Okay. And so we, we're the ones that come up with those ideas. So if you want to find out how, what God's desire is, what his will is and how he operates Look at Jesus' ministry, because what we do know is the scripture teaches that Jesus perfectly pleased the Father, and he fulfilled the will of God in every turn. Everywhere he went, he fulfilled the will of God. So if you want to know what God's will is in a situation, start out by looking at Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, the Bible says, my Bible says, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, why is it? Because there's another reference in Matthew's gospel that said he healed them all. Why do you think that maybe he wasn't able to heal all who were sick, but he healed many who were sick in Capernaum at this particular occasion? They didn't do their part. They didn't receive, right? Mm -hmm. They did not receive. So there were, I'm, I'm quite sure in this situation, because what we do know is the power of God was present. What we do know is Jesus was present. What we do know is the Holy Spirit and the anointing were present. So if people did not receive, it was because they failed to, to uh, put corresponding action with their faith. So if he gave them a faith instruction, which we know that he did by the word therapuo being used, then there were some who did not act on what Jesus said. And so they were not healed. Now, what I can tell you, his will was that they all get healed because mm -hmm. his will was not the different from one town to the next. Okay. He was the same. He, everywhere he went, he endeavored to heal everybody who came in contact with him. All right. Now, the Bible says that Jesus, uh, in verse 34, he cast out many demons. That word cast out, what <laughs> I like, I, I love the language. In the Greek, it actually means he evicted them. They had taken up residence in these people's lives, and Jesus told them that ends today. It ends right now, and he put them out. You know, it's amazing to me, and, and I'm, of course, obviously, I've never experienced this. Uh, it's obviously real as well, but you hear in the news about the problems that people are having with squatters. You know, the, I, I, I've seen story after story where, 
you'll have a family member or somebody that owns a house and they're trying to take care of it from a distant place and and somebody will move into the house and just take over the house. I, I saw an article the other day where there are, are people who, who thieves who have figured out how they can go and change the deed at the courthouse and mm -hmm. actually steal the house from you mm -hmm. because of the lax laws concerning deeds in certain states and cities. Mm -hmm. My point is this, that's what the devil has tried to do in people's lives. He, the, the, the devil tries to come in and take over and claim someone's life as his residence. And the good news is through the power of what Jesus has already done through the power of God that is present, uh, their evictions can be carried out. All right. And so you and I are assigned when we come across someone that is in that condition, you and I are authorized by the power of God and by the name of Jesus to evict those spirits and tell them they have to go. They've got to move out. They cannot stay in that house. All right. And of course, I'm talking about in a person's life and continue to harass them. Now, the implication in verse 34 is that some of the physical diseases that people were experiencing was a result of demonic activity in their life. Now, that's not the case with every sickness or disease, but it was in this particular situation, some of what Jesus encountered, because when he cast the demons out of the people, the people got healed. And so I, I'm really, really taking time with this. So look at what happened. Verse 34, that he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now notice what happened in verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, what do you think is, is, is going on here? Why, why did that happen? Verse 35. Think with me for a second. Do what? What'd you say, Matt? I, 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 it's it's kind of obvious there was, he was going to be heavily sought after. Yeah. Well, the, the big thing is, and please don't ever forget this. As we study these things, Jesus was a hundred percent man, human, mm -hmm. and a hundred percent God. Now, two things needed to happen here. Number one, I can imagine that he was maybe in need of some rest. And then secondly, mm -hmm. he needed some spiritual recharging mm -hmm. as well. Now, you need to understand, yes, he was the son of God when he was operating in that, but he did not function and minister as the son of God. The Bible says in Philippians chapter two that he set all of that aside. And so he functioned and ministered in the earth as a human being anointed by the Holy Ghost. So what happens And this will do you some good. Listen to me. What happens to you and me when we get tired and hungry? How spiritual do you tend to be? Not very. I, I know me. 
I get hangry. Okay. And, and, and get grumpy when I get tired. All right. Well, do you think Jesus was exempt from that? No, he needed to maintain and stay in a place where he knew he was built up spiritually and he was ready because it, you'll see uh, all throughout his ministry, he there were times when he would try and go out and pray and the people would chase him down out in the mm -hmm. middle of the woods while he's trying to pray. Mm -hmm. And so he had to be ready all the time. But you need to understand this. The more tired and hungry you are, your spiritual effectiveness goes down. So, and I'm not talking about just your, you know, if you were going around healing the sick, I'm talking about being able to walk in love towards people. If you're tired and hungry, your ability to maintain your spiritual life goes down. It's important that you rest and you eat. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you eat a bunch of junk, but I'm just saying you need you need both of those in order for your spiritual level to stay where it is. Then on top of that, you've got to maintain your life spiritually. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.